Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 29 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. My name is Nathan Dungan. I am the founder and president of Share, Save, Spend and guest moderator of tonight's presentation. I am also on the board of the forum, and it is my distinct pleasure to welcome the first speaker in the forum's 2010 season. As many of you know, the topic of money, values, and the culture is a particular passion of mine. I am a firm believer that the choices we make with our money can change the world. Now more than ever, we, the village, need to step back and rethink the role money plays in our lives. And not just on a personal level, but as community, corporate, and faith leaders as well. Tonight's forum is a wonderful opportunity for us to begin that reflection and conversation. The Reverend Jim Wallace has been described by Cornell West as, quote, the major prophetic evangelical Christian voice in America today. He is a best-selling author, public theologian, and international commentator on, religious, on religion, public life, faith, and politics. Raised in a devout evangelical family, Reverend Wallace grew up with prayer and Bible study as an essential part of his life. During his teenage years, his questioning of racial segregation in his own church and community led him to the black churches and neighborhoods of inner city Detroit, where he became a committed participant in the civil rights movement. While attending Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois, he joined others in starting the Sojourners Community and Magazine. Nearly 40 years later, Mr. Wallace remains president, CEO, and editor-in-chief of Sojourners, which continues its long commitment to provide alternative perspectives on faith, politics, and the culture. He's the author of eight books, including his newest book, which is the topic of tonight's Town Hall Forum, Rediscovering Values on Wall Street, Main Street, and Your Street, A Moral Compass for the New Economy, Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum author and theologian, the Reverend Jim Wallace. Thank you. It's great to be back. And I was reminded tonight how much I love the people of Minnesota because I walked in, you're all kind of jamming to when the saints go marching in despite the loss of the Vikings, just a few. <laughs> the graciousness is just overwhelming of the Minnesotans. It is great to be back. We're having these town meetings around the country. We began in Detroit, my hometown, where one of every two workers is looking for a job. Uh, it was kind of counterintuitive to launch a book in one of the worst book cities in the country. I thought that was the place to begin this conversation before going to Wall Street and take the message there. But it's been good to get out of Washington. Uh, I knew that I was uh, getting a little caught up in the Washington debates when putting my, my boys to bed one night, Jack, the six-year-old, uh, in his prayers, he said, Dear God, thank you for my mom and my dad, my brother and my friends and my family and, and I pray for all the poor and hungry people and I pray for all the people who don't have 
um, who don't ha who don't have uh, life insurance. <laughs> I tried not to smile. I said, "Jack, do you mean health insurance?" He says, "Oh, I knew it was one of those." He said. <laughs> so you can tell what's going on in our house these days uh, for too long a time. I think the country is ready for a fresh conversation about values. My sixth grade son, 11-year-old, is taking Chinese. And uh, I was reminded the other day uh, how the Chinese symbol for crisis, as some of you probably know, is a combination of the two symbols for danger and opportunity. Crisis gives us a chance to rethink, reset, and begin to go in a new direction. If we don't learn from this crisis, then all the pain and suffering of people in places like my hometown of Detroit will be in vain. But if we do a values reset, even this great recession could prove to be redemptive. So I think we got to begin by asking the right questions. Now, most of the politicians and media pundits aren't doing that. Their question is always, when will this crisis end? That's their question. I want to suggest that's the wrong question. Of course, we want to know when, when things will ease. But the better question is, how will this crisis change us? That's the question. This book is about that question. How do we together shape a moral compass for the new economy that's emerging? I think most of us now have figured out that underneath this economic crisis, there's a values crisis. And we won't get to economic recovery without a moral recovery to accompany and maybe even shape the economic one. So that's what I'm trying to look at here and how to spark a national conversation. The media, the news cycle, of course, has the high drama, what I call in the book the bad morality play of banks, bailouts, and bonuses. These huge bonuses, massive bonuses, a time of massive suffering is called a scandal, a, a, a political shame, I would call it from my tradition, a sin of biblical proportions, $150 billion now in the bonuses for just the top bank executives. That's enough money to erase the budget gaps in all 50 states or to extend unemployment benefits for seven months to all 16 million unemployed people to ensure uh, two-thirds of all the uninsured, about 31 million people, or this one is what stuns me the most, uh, a quarter of the money, just 24%, would be enough to prevent or postpone all the foreclosures predicted through 2012. Uh, I got a great, great applause uh, from uh, the John Stewart audience the other night when I said, they could just send all their bonuses to Haiti. <laughs> but, but as 
Upsetting as that is, I think it's really only a symptom. Because underneath, there really has been an erosion, a societal erosion of values. I talk about in the book these new maxims that have overtaken us. Greed is good. It's all about me, and I want it now. Those kinds of maxims destroy economies, cultures, families, and our very souls. And so I want to suggest that we return to some new old virtues that I discuss as well, which are things like enough is enough. We're in this together. And I love the indigenous native people's ethic of evaluating decisions today by their impact on the seventh generation out. Now that would change things. So we're in this moment that I think offers us an opportunity for a reset. I, I found all kind of stuff in, this, in the research for the book uh, verifying these new maxims. One of my favorites is this uh, late night comedian doing a routine and, uh, and he talks about being on an airplane and the flight attendant says, we've now got wireless internet in the air on the flight, but today it's broken. And the guy next to me says, this is bull, bull, bull. He's mad about something he didn't know existed 10 seconds ago. Yeah. <laughs> what we're learning in this crisis is that relationships really do matter between bankers and those who borrow, between employers and workers, between parents and children. Not all the bankers did this stuff that precipitated this crisis. I talk about a banker in the book, Ron Hermanis, I met this summer at Chautauqua Conference Center, and he runs a bank, a kind of small regional bank, Hudson City in New Jersey, and his colleagues said, we can bundle up these mortgage securities and then speculate, it's like gambling money. And Ron said, no, no, I, I, we have this long relationship with our customers. Yeah, but Ron, we're going to make a lot of money here. And Ron says, no, I, I, I really want to keep these relationships. So his bank didn't need a bailout, and he ends up on the cover of Fortune magazine as Banker of the Year. But even more fun for Ron was he got the first annual George Bailey Award. You remember Jimmy Stewart's <laughs> Wonderful Life movie? So Ron walks down the street, he loves it. People say, hey, George! <laughs> there are ways to do this differently. So I was on the steps of the U.S. Treasury before Christmas, very cold morning, and Pico, the terrific neighborhood organizing uh, network around the country, had brought in some folks who had been foreclosed upon. First-time homeowners, condo buyers, and they were mostly African-American, Latina, Latino, home buyers, and they came in to tell their stories. And I was there to, you know, do the, uh, the religious leader bit in the press conference. And the woman who spoke before me, her name was Mercy Martinez. Now she'd qualified, 
She'd saved her money, qualified for uh, a fixed mortgage rate, but she got tricked into an exotic time bomb mortgage like so many people are being tricked these days. And, uh, and now she lost her job and she's being foreclosed upon. Now we're on the treasury steps. President Obama's meeting in that very hour with the bankers from Wall Street. And Bank of America's right down the block. They're big marble pillared headquarters. And, and Mercy began to cry. And I just got mad. Because by that time, Bank of America had modified about 100 loans nationwide. And they were the ones responsible for tricking her. So my wife joined and decided to fire Bank of America. We took our little account out of our branch bank and moved it. And now a little mini movement has begun around the country. There's a website, moveyourmoney.info. It finds where good responsible banks in your zip code might be. And I say, if these banks are too big to fail, let's make them smaller. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Methodist Pension Fund is $15 billion in it. If they move their money, it might get the attention of Wall Street. Elizabeth Warren is a Harvard economist. She's the, uh, she oversees the con Congressional Panel on TARP. And I talked to her this week. She tells me, tells me she comes from a mixed marriage in Oklahoma, a Methodist and Baptist. Uh, <laughs> and she's a grandmother now and a Methodist former Sunday school teacher. And she talked about her idea about a, a financial consumer protection agency, which is in the House bill, in the bill now going through the Senate, and how this would finally, finally begin to hold folks accountable. And she describes, we have an interview in Sojourners coming out very soon with Elizabeth, how that for most of our history we had boom and bust in our economy. In the 1930s, woke us up and taught us some things. So right after that, some rules of the row were put in place. You know, uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and laws against banks using your deposits to speculate. And so there were these regulations that really helped many Americans be prosperous and secure for decades until they began to remove the rules about 1980 and water them down until there was nothing left and what she now calls the law of the jungle prevails. Predatory lending, credit cards used to have applications of one or two pages, now it's about 30. Same with mortgages, full of all kinds of fine print that no one understands, full of tricks designed to deceive people and drive them into the ditch of financial ruin. This is a moral issue. This is, in fact, I said today in a column, a theological issue because it fails to take into account uh, human frailty and human sinfulness and human fallenness. And you can't just trust banks and corporations to do the right thing. You've got to prevent them from doing the wrong thing. Then at Davos, where I went to speak last week, I said to them, the CEOs, regulations, you're right, won't be enough necessary, but they won't be enough. We need ethical behavior on the part of business people. Adam Smith, who you know wrote The Wealth of Nations and coined the phrase, the invisible hand in the market, 
uh, he writes in his previous book, Moral Sentiments, that unless there's a moral framework, the market can't function properly. And Joseph Schumpeter, who's an Austrian economist, in the 40s wrote, without ethical sensibility, the market ends up devouring all the other sectors and finally devours itself. And that's what we've seen. Relationships matter. Also, social sins will find you out. Two of Gandhi's seven deadly sins are, are wealth without work and commerce without morality. At our town meeting in New York, we had a Wall Street executive come, and he's in the panel to respond, and he said, yeah, we've had growth, but it's almost all leverage. Money, making money on money, and not much wealth connected to creating jobs. So do you remember uh, when John Stewart had Jim Cramer come on his show a few months ago, Jim Cramer's Mad Money? And uh, John Stewart said, this isn't a game. This gambling casino economy isn't a game. Real people are suffering here. When do we think we could, we could separate wealth from work? And uh, I watched it. I was very intrigued by, by uh, how John sort of showed that the emperor had no clothes. And I was preaching the next Sunday in the National Cathedral, and the text happened to be Jesus overturning the money changers' tables in the temple. And I realized I had just seen that happen on John Stewart. He'd enacted that, so my sermon title was Sunday School with John Stewart. <laughs> and the first chapter of the book is now called, it's this dialogue with Kramer, Sunday School with John Stewart. I said, John, you know, you use satire and truth-telling and humor to make your point. The Hebrew prophets did that, John. Maybe you're in the tradition of the biblical prophets. He's, no, I'm just a comedian from the Borscht Belt, you know. <laughs> but I think in the popular culture now, we're seeing voices raising up. I think Main Street is learning from this. I think there's new conversations starting. We've had small business people in Philadelphia tell me just last week they're doing in their congregations uh, courses on faith and finance, adult Sunday school courses. We need new habits of the heart. Um, I think we need conversion, really. We talk about a clean energy economy. We're all for that, well and good, but it'll take more than the rewiring of the energy grid, but a rewiring of ourselves, our habits, our expectations, our assumptions, our demands. My Depression-era parents didn't spend money they didn't have for things they didn't need. Wealth doesn't trickle down but bad values seem to. So we will point to Wall Street and hold them accountable. I hope all of you in the next two weeks write your senator on behalf of a, a consumer financial protection agency. We must do that, but we also got to hold up the mirror and look at ourselves. This is a chance to do that too. We need conversion to a, a family matters culture. Um, this economic pressure has put enormous stress on families. Instead of keeping up with the Joneses, maybe we should check on the Joneses to make sure they're okay. That's a very different ethic here. 
maybe, maybe what I'm reading is a good sign saying that people are kind of spending and buying less and doing more. Having dinner more often at home with the family, with the kids, having a conversation. If you're a parent, I got 11-year-old and 6-year-old, I want to tell you, parenting has become a countercultural activity in America. Am I right? Nodding heads, parents all around. The fight between screen time and family time. I learned in research for this book, guess what's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper? Screens, flat screen TVs, cell phones, iPods, computers. Guess what is getting more expensive? Education. Education. One distracts and entertains and one roots you deeper. These are fundamental issues. I talk in the book about being a Little League baseball coach, how the values of Little League and congregations and community organizations really are crucial now to rediscover what I call the commons, to renew the commons. Uh, in Detroit, the Capuchin fathers have given away hundreds of thousands of plants to seed community gardens all over my, my hometown. Motown now has, has vegetable gardens and fruit gardens and flowers and geese and ducks and goats and sheep, even cows are grazing in the Motor City. Unemployed people are finding work, clean, healthy food, and you know what? It's building community. And maybe in places like Michigan and Ohio, where all you have left is hope, maybe that's where the new things will finally emerge. So my chapter on Detroit is the parable of Detroit and the green shoots of hope. I think it's a time when congregations could reconnect to their own communities. I got a call from a pastor in Columbus, Ohio, big church, biggest church in Ohio, mega church, but full of unemployed people now. And he said, I, I just think we're being called to do, to do an offering for unemployed people. On Palm Sunday, I said, well, that sounds good. I, I want to raise, we, I think we can raise $250,000. I said, Rich, that one offering, that's a lot of money. Yeah, but I think we're being called to this. They raised $630,000. Now they have an unemployment center serving the entire community of Columbus, Ohio. Um, I want to make clear that I don't believe religion has any monopoly on morality, none whatsoever. But there are things from our multiple faith traditions that could be real correctives to our current crisis. Remember the values like simplicity, stewardship, humility, patience, modesty, and the sacred value of every human life. Jesus said, don't be anxious for what you eat, drink, and wear. Modern advertising says be anxious all the time for everything. We, none of us parents, want our kids to be shaped by the values of modern advertising. I was in uh, LA for the Drucker Business Forum, business school, and the dean was interviewing me, and he said, uh, he said, I was reading about the the jubilee tradition you talked about, where that periodic leveling of things that, that the Old Testament speaks of, the Hebrew scriptures, where, 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 where land was returned to people and slaves were freed, debt was canceled, and, and, uh, and, and I thought that was a Christian thing, and I realized it's Jewish. I'm a Jew. It's mine. It belongs to me, you know. 
rediscovering my own tradition, or Muslims can't do usury. You know, Christians used to not be able to do that, but we've kind of modified our ethic here. Uh, but in Sharia banking, you can't do that. So I've learned about how Sharia banking operates with a loan and a fee per service, but not interest. Interesting models for us to look at here. So I'm hoping for these conversations where we talk about relations that matter, social sins have consequences, and that our own good will be found in the common good. At Davos, we actually talked about a common good economy and what that might look like. This is going to be a populist moment, one way or another. The gap, the rage between Wall Street and Main Street is now palpable all over the country. Everywhere I go, I hear the anger. But anger that isn't channeled could become even destructive, unraveling, fraying our bonds, just attacking each other and not finding any way forward. But if we find the strength to offer some new kinds of leadership from all sectors, this, I think, could be a redemptive time. We must not, must not go back to business as usual and squander this opportunity. What we need is a new normal, one that we all create together. This crisis is a structural crisis. Therefore, it will require new social regulation. But it's also a spiritual crisis and will require from all of us new self-regulation as well. How do we reset our values? Restore the common good, rebuild community, and together find a compass for a new economy. I'll close by saying when Barack Obama won the election, um, he said on one of those first days, he said, I won't be able to accomplish very much of any significance without the wind of a movement at my back. Back in the old days when his old friends had his email, I wrote him back and said, yeah, and one at your front to clear the path and pull you along when necessary, like all presidents always need. It's time now to understand that American people voted for change a year ago. They're still voting for change. And until a political leader or party decides to change, Washington and Wall Street, and particularly the relationship between the two, they're going to keep voting against who's ever in office. That means we don't sit back with our arms folded and say, let's see how they perform. We ask how we're going to perform because this crisis gives us a chance to build the kind of social movement that always makes social change possible. That is possible. And the choice is up to us. And the future of our children are really hanging in the balance. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Jim Wallace. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum coming from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Nathan Dungan, founder and president of Share, Save, Spend and guest moderator for tonight's forum. Our speaker is the Reverend Jim Wallace. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to invite the radio audience to join us at Westminster for the next Town Hall Forum on Thursday, February 25th at noon, when Cory Booker, mayor of Newark, New Jersey, will speak on reclaiming and empowering at-risk youth. Jim Wallace, if you could return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. What specifically can communities of faith do to be more proactive in helping to close the gap between the rich and the poor? There's um, a couple chapters in the book that deal with that question. One's called When the Gaps Become Too Big. I discovered that we've had two peak periods when the gap between the top of the economic system and the bottom, or CEO, salaries and average workers uh, was two times when, the, when those gaps were at their peak, the year before the Great Depression and the year before this Great Recession. When the gap becomes too large, it's a sign of in coming disaster. The other chapter is listening to the canaries. A young state senator from West Virginia whose dad was a coal miner, told me about this, how some of you know this, that the miners would take canaries down with them into the mines because the canaries have a very fragile respiratory system. When they begin to choke and wheeze, the miners know the air is becoming toxic and they all better scramble out quickly before it's too late. This young guy said the canaries are a metaphor for the poor in all of our faith traditions. They're the monitor. They're the metaphor. They're the sign of when they are struggling, when they're in trouble, it means the air is getting toxic for all of us, even though we don't realize that. So I think that kind of solid biblical teaching in our congregations uh, to mind the gaps and to listen to the canaries is the way to begin. This crisis could connect, reconnect congregations to their communities in ways that we haven't seen for a very long time. So in that sense, it could be a real opportunity. Perfect, thank you. The consumer culture is keenly interested in shaping the spending habits of all of us, but especially young people, like your two sons. And when there is a hyper-focus on spending, we can easily lose sight of the real needs in the world. What, if any, moral responsibility should consumer companies have for creating unrealistic consumer expectations and anxiety, as well as the accompanying financial pressure on youth and their parents? Well, um, at the end of the book, I talk about, I have 20 moral exercises. These are things that we all can do in our families uh, and our congregational level, and then, of course, Wall Street and Washington. The first one is, um, it says that our budgets and our calendars are moral documents, both of them. So sit down with your, your, your spouse, your partner, your family, and write down your life priorities. Do it with your kids. What's important to us? Then look at your calendar and look at your budget. How you spend your time and how you spend your money as moral choices. And um, 
I'm finding, and Joy and I are finding, that bringing the kids into that conversation about what we're going to give at Christmas, and not just what is on the list to get, uh, can become a real exercise in really encouraging that kind of empathy and compassion and generosity in kids. I think kids have a natural kind of empathy which can be encouraged along with all the assaults. I don't know how you feel. Sometimes I feel like all the assaults of the popular culture are aimed at my two boys. That's how it feels sometimes. But I think you can counter that with deliberate family conversations about what this family believes in, what this family is committed to, and how we're going to act that out in practical ways. Fantastic. Currently, we have an image of retirement as 20-plus years of leisure and travel. What might the new normal of retirement look like? Um, when I go out on the road now, we go out speaking, um, about half the audience is always under 30, and half of them under, under 25. And I'm very, I often express my hope in this new generation that is charting a new course. Uh, but then I have uh, a lot of older folks in the afternoon say, what about us? What about us? You know, we're retiring, we're about to retire. And so I'm getting a vision from that older generation of a whole, a whole lot of energy and wisdom that's waiting to be rechanneled. And so I've got this image now of a, of a younger generation, 20s and 30s kind of coming up, kind of linking with this older generation that have got some experience and are now ready to invest themselves, reinvest in the things they're most committed to. Because movements have to be cross-generational. So I'm looking forward to our in internship program at Sojourners having not just 20-somethings, but 60 and 70-somethings as well. Maybe sharing the same house for a while. That'd be kind of fun. Can you comment on the recent Supreme Court decision that pulls even more power away from citizens to help um, change happen? Specifically, I think they were talking about the, um, the power for corporations to lobby. Oh, right? I know what they're talking yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> Supreme Court Justice Brandeis said a long time ago, you can either have concentration of wealth or democracy but you can't have both. You can't have both. This Supreme Court decision was an assault on the very fundamentals of democracy in this country. And it's, it's no longer hyperbole or rhetoric to say we face the danger of becoming a government for the money, of the money, by the money, instead of the people. I got tickled the other day when I read an article about, a, I think it was kind of a spoof, but it made the point. A corporation wants to run for office in Maryland. A corporation running for office. We want to eliminate the middleman, they said. <laughs> Not influence candidates. We want to become the candidate and become, we want to become the senators. And we promise to put the people second. Uh, it was a satirical comment, but I think we have to, number one, we have to press for total transparency to start with so everyone knows which corporations are trying to unseat this candidate and put this other candidate in. And finally, I think now, I've been talking to some folks this week, I think we're going to need 
a constitutional amendment to change the Constitution to make campaign finance possible. Kind of to that end, if political parties are ineffectual and if elections can be bought, where do you see us best able to organize power for a new American story? Well, I am a big believer in social movements. I always have been. My last book was about the great awakenings and how they sparked not just revival, spiritual revival, but all these social movements around abolition of slavery and women's suffrage and civil rights, and of course, uh, the end of apartheid in South Africa. And so uh, I think sometimes uh, we, we invest so much in electoral politics, and, and, and I think so, and sometimes uh, that's important to do. But the real change, King, King never, you know, he navigated the quarters of power. He did that, but his base was never in them. His base was outside of them. And we have to learn this kind of inside-outside dance and rhythm and movement. How do you build movements on the outside that really affect the change on the inside? And I think um, uh, Obama was right to sense that need for a movement, but in this year, since that hope was felt, I think the need for that movement is greater than ever. So we have to start thinking about think movement, what it needs to, to build movements, organizing, training, campaigning. I think we're on the edge of what could be a significant social movement. It won't be solved by thinking, now we have the right people in office, and I know your senators, I talk to them. Uh, there's a lot of people up there I like, but you know, I know that we're not going to move the Senate, the Congress, and the White House unless we are the ones who build social movements to hold power accountable. That's what democracy is at its best. Voting is just the beginning of being a citizen and not the end. Do MBA programs fail in the area of ethics, and if so, why? You know, that's a good question. Uh, here's what I'm hearing from people who teach ethics at business schools. It's very interesting. They say, number one, our class, our business ethics classes, are oversubscribed, very popular, packed, full, lots of interest. Then they say, but we feel, as business ethics professors, we feel marginal to the curriculum and vision of this business school. Ethics have felt marginal. So at Davos this year, at the World Economic Forum, uh, Davos has always had this sort of sidebar of ethics and so on. Uh, and on the, you want to hear about that, you get up at 7 in the morning and go up to the fourth floor and you hear Jim Wallace and Mohammed Yunus, you know, and, and 40 people from nonprofit organizations. This time, Mohammed and I were in one of the opening plenaries on the main floor with these CEOs, framing a conversation about ethics and values. And a lot of business school people were there for that conversation. And I think this could be a place where uh, uh, business schools ask the question of the kind of leadership they're going to offer. People who are doing what you've been doing for a long time. I think some of the stuff that people like you've been doing uh, has been kind of ahead of its time. And the time may be right for a whole new conversation about business ethics. As long as, well, a business ethics professor at Davos said the best thing of the whole time. She said, people on the top 
have got to start, start listening to people on the bottom. That's the beginning of a new conversation about economics. Do you have any hope that, the, that real health care reform will happen? <laughs> that takes a lot of faith. <laughs> uh, the health care debate has been uh, a great preoccupation for many of us, mostly on the issue of coverage. Uh, so many people uh, living without health care in this country. Um, and it's been painful to see how the politics of Washington are now entirely focused on winning and losing. Um, everything, it's almost like the campaign never ends. And the focus is always on the next election. And how will our votes this way or that way on any issue help us to gain advantage over the other side in the next election? We've lost any notion of solving problems together. What they do, both sides do it, they want to make you afraid of a problem and then blame it on the other side. We saw it in the healthcare debate. And so what we want, most of us want, is a solutions-based politics. We want them to get something done. Like when the big snow hit DC, all these cartoons and papers said, well, now they have an excuse for not doing anything. You know? <laughs> So I think it's, it's time to demand a solution-based politics in Washington. Healthcare, I'm hoping and praying that we don't lose all of the energy and momentum that we had for this past year. But I want to say that um, uh, whatever healthcare reform passes or doesn't pass will only be the beginning of real healthcare reform. We've got a long way to really reform a very broken healthcare system. And the bills still current on the floor of the Senate and the House are just a bare beginning in that direction. Nearly half of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day and are virtually outside the global economy as um, uh, defined by Jeffrey Sachs of the United Nations. How can the folks who are here tonight, youth and adults, as well as the good citizens of this state, help to raise them from a state of poverty? You know, uh, what Jeff says about that is, uh, is so powerfully true. What that means is that before this economic crisis, before it ever was announced or named, the global economic system was failing half of its people. Half of God's children live on uh, less than $2 a day, 3 billion people. So it was already failing, all those folks. David Brooks, the New York Times, wrote recently about the earthquake in uh, San Francisco some years back was a, also 0.7 on the Richter scale, killed 61 people. The earthquake in Haiti killed now today, they were saying, at least 200,000. This is a story of when earthquake meets poverty. When a country is already so devastated, infrastructure so weak, the way people are living so vulnerable, when disaster hits, it's a disaster of epic proportions. And so I think it's time, a crisis again, is a time to rethink the economic system. Even at Davos last week, 
they, they have for the first time a, a, a faith council at Davos. They have councils on branding and marketing and now they want on faith. And uh, it's kind of, ner it's ner makes people nervous, I think, this faith question. Uh, but we raised this question. This was our, our primary issue. When the system's failing half the population already, how does a crisis become a time to bring the, them in? And again, I think uh, uh, this new gen generation is really raising that question across the political spectrum. I was sharing with friends tonight at, at Supper, my, my six-year-old, um, I love, I, ha I hate to, I put my kids most to bed most nights of their lives, even with all the travel, because I hate to miss the prayers. They're just not to miss. And, uh, and Jack was praying the other night, and he says, uh, Dear God, thank you for my mom, my dad, uh, um, um, and, and uh, I pray for all the poor and, and hungry people and homeless people. God, there really are a lot of poor and hungry people. Any questions or comments? <laughs> He's in an interactive classroom, you know, he wants to know what God thinks about all of this, you know. So. Please comment on um, how Wall Street and government uh, economists who say the recession is over, are they not trying to sell us on going back to sleep rather than rising up to change America? Yes. <laughs> well, I just came from Detroit and the recession is not over in Detroit. Uh, my brother is the, uh, he runs this big organization there that mostly has to just deal with vulnerable people from, from seniors who are in trouble to, to uh, at-risk kids on the street. And um, it's a wasteland in Detroit now. And every place I've gone on this book tour, it's the same thing. So we are in serious trouble. And uh, again, beware of the false claims of recovery and the easy sort of movement to getting back to business as usual. Uh, that's a term I, I, I'd like to not let anybody use anymore. Business as usual would be a disaster for all of us. This really could be a reset time, and unless we use it for that, then all this, as I said, will, will, will be in vain. So the politicians and pundits are going to keep asking the wrong questions. So we have to make sure we are asking the right questions. So that can happen in congregations and communities and schools and families and or in living rooms. But I, I don't know, I, being out on the road talking to folks, I think the country is ready for a new conversation on values. I don't think Larry Summers and Tim Geithner are, but I think the rest of us have to ask that question. The new TV reality show has CEOs working at entry-level jobs in their companies. Could this help them learn new values? I saw a trailer for that show, and there's a lot of uh, CEOs I'd like to put to work at the uh, <laughs> local level. Um, yeah, if that, if, if, that were, if that TV reality show were, were actually reality, uh, I think this could be a very healthy thing. I, I, I do think the religious wisdom always is that the truth about a society is always better known from the bottom than it is from the top. So in the book, I, I quote a, a book called Richistan, which is a book about the new country that exists 
high above all the rest of us of the richest people in the world. And it's a fascinating book because it shows how a whole different reality has been created. There's a whole uh, section here called Yacht Culture. Um, this guy had a 100-foot yacht, and he, got, he was really happy about this until he began to see the much bigger yachts coming into the harbor. And finally, after one after another came in, and he read about these others getting bigger and bigger, he said, you know, my, my yacht, it feels like a dinghy. When a 100-foot yacht feels like a dinghy, you know that we're in trouble. And one of those CEOs I name in the book, I'll leave his name off here, has one of those biggest yachts. And he said, yeah, when my wife and I are on the yacht, it feels like we're in a, a restaurant all by ourselves. It's kind of weird. It's a little silly, but it's surprising, he said, what you can get used to. Um, and so I think maybe a bit of an ur urban plunge might be very appropriate for some of the CEOs. And I want to say, I, I am having conversations with some of those folks. They're kind of, if some of you know the gospel story, they're coming like Nicodemus at night. You know, we're having these <laughs> private conversations. So we'll see what comes of all that. Can you offer us some hope and inspiration by citing examples of new businesses which demonstrate an active concern for the common good? Well, I mentioned, you know, the Hudson City Bank and uh, the people moving their money from uh, the big banks to the, the, the credit unions and the, and the smaller banks. Um, uh, but I, there's, in the small business world, there's a lot of entrepreneurial stuff happening. In fact, there's a, there's a, there's a line now uh, social entrepreneur is a, new, is a new term. And some of those folks exist on the profit side, some on the nonprofit side, and the line between them kind of is more and more permeable. I met a young guy at Davos who was uh, working in Cambodia, and his organization had, had, had saved 100,000 women and children from sexual trafficking and slavery in Cambodia. But then they had nothing for them when they were rescued and they would sometimes move back into it as a way to survive until he learned how to create like Mohammed Yunus Grameen Bank kind of small businesses, small micro enterprise businesses. So now they're creating all this business, what Mohammed calls social business in Cambodia, which is legitimate business, creating products and so on for people who were, in, who were being, you know, in the in, in the slave trade. So, so I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, for new business and social business. And, and again, at Davos, some of the older CEOs told me that their younger hires, their younger executives that they're hiring, uh, really, really aren't just motivated by the money, but they really want to make a difference in the world. Now, they want to make a profit, but there was more talk this time than I've ever seen before about, about uh, uh, stakeholder capitalism, which you know about, as opposed to just shareholder capitalism, or multiple bottom lines and not just the quarterly profit and loss statement. So I think the more we can extend the conversation, uh, this is a good time to have that conversation. And, uh, and Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal saying corporations were meant to be purposeful organizations and not just profitable organizations. And a friend of mine who's a CEO named Bob Lane uh, said the market is supposed to be the means, a means and not the end. 
So there's a chapter in the book called The Market as God. Uh, Harvey Cox began to read the business pages of the newspaper, a Harvard theologian, and he noticed how the language was familiar to him. The market was all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present, and the market was nervous and angry and, and, and restive, and, and the shamans, of course, and the high priests would tell us what would work and what wouldn't work, and, uh, and, and to oppose them is, is heresy, and you'll be burned at the stake on conservative talk radio. And, uh, and, and he talked about how the market has become like God, uh, and how to make the market move from, small, from capital M to small m, how to have the market play its proper role within proper limits is both an economic enterprise and also, I think, a moral and even theological one. This, uh, speaking of kind of these younger executives you just spoke about, um, there were a couple of questions. Looking about the audience, you know, how, they were asking, how do we get the youth moving um, and get this message of renewing the commons to the masses of young people who have grown up in the me generation? Well, um, I talk in the book about how we need to, um, to really change our habits of the heart about work and about service. is isn't just about jobs, it's about work. We talk about the work of God and God's work and being, being co-creators and, 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 and in service. Here's a, here's a couple interesting statistics for you. In the year before the Great Recession began, 47% of Harvard undergraduates wanted to be investment bankers. 47%. This summer, Wendy Kopp came to see me. She's the founder of Teach for America. And Wendy told me it is now more competitive to get into Teach for America than to get into Harvard. Why? Well, listen to their offer. I mean, come and live in the most dangerous neighborhoods in the country, teach in the most hopeless schools, with the most at-risk kids and will pay you nothing for it. How could you resist an offer like that? You know? And so, a new generation is going for Teach for America. You know, Georgetown, the president there is a good friend of mine, Georgetown says uh, more of the Georgetown graduates move on to Teach for America than any other single place. So, between those two statistics is a moral landscape that a new generation is trying to navigate right now, and at stake is their vocation and the future of their children, I think. And then the last question for this evening, um, what are your hopes and dreams for your two children and the world that they will inherit? My 11-year-old, um, his prayers are a little more serious than... Uh, his little brother sometimes. But I remember one night he was wrestling in his prayer life with this, this fact that you mentioned earlier about 30,000 children who literally die every day globally, every day, because of utterly preventable disease and what Bono calls stupid poverty, stupid hunger. And he had come across that fact at some point, and we hadn't been talking about it, but one, one night in his prayer he said, uh, 
So, dear God, he says, I pray those children don't die again tomorrow. Though that's unlikely. Um, So I pray that it'll be their best day ever. But that's stupid. So I pray that you'd help us to stop this from happening. And uh, and at that point, I I felt like, okay, I think he gets it. I think he gets it. Um, I I think, you know, Lincoln needed Frederick Douglass. Johnson needed King. Uh, Roosevelt needed a robust labor movement to make him do a new deal. And I think we're in need of a new generation now and, and those who want to retire and throw themselves back into the movement um, to create that kind of, of moral energy. And I would leave you with this thought. Um, in Davos this year, I met the uh, old 32, 35-year-old new Archbishop of Cape Town in South Africa. He's Desmond Tutu's second successor. Desmond's been here to the forum in days past. And I talked talk to him about how Desmond Tutu taught me my theology of hope. He taught me the difference between optimism and hope. Optimism is how do things look? I mean, looking good, looking bad, cup half full, cup half empty. It's your evaluation of how things look. Hope is not like that. Hope is not a feeling or an assessment. Hope is a decision. It's a choice you make because of whatever it is that you call faith. That's what hope is. And things change when a critical mass of people make not an assessment, but a decision for hope and then bet their lives on it. And the book of Hebrews says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And my best paraphrase of that still is hope means believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. Thank you very much. (laughs) 